Um, I, I'm actually very, very excited um, for this morning. I'm frankly I'm excited every Sunday morning to be here um, and, and worship with you guys and, and teach God's Word. Um, we are starting a new series that's going to probably take us the next couple months going through the book of 1 Timothy. Um, I'll just say this. We, 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 there, this is just... Every book of the Bible, if, if you study it and soak yourself into it, uh, it will take months and months and months. And, and so there's just certain things where uh, we're not going to go super in-depth on um, and, and go quickly through. But then there's going to be stuff we're going to go super in-depth on um, rather than go quickly. So please read this on your own. And if you have your sermon notes, you'll notice from the title of the message that um, we are dealing with probably is the most controversial subject in Christianity um, and in the church today. Um, so we have some, some really tough sledding. Um, so I'm going to just start right into it. Um, book of First Timothy. Uh, I'm going to start reading the very first two verses. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our people, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace Mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So um, I'm going to give a very quick um, kind of background of what's going on and why Paul is writing this letter. We will um, fill in any gaps that there are this morning on the background and on the context in the weeks ahead. Um, like I said, we've got a lot to get to, so I want to just touch on this really quickly and give you a quick snapshot of what's going on. So you have the Apostle Paul. Um, by the way, the if you do not have a study Bible, it will be the best $60 or the best $47 you spend um, if you have an Amazon Prime account. Uh, get one. I prefer the ESV. Dan does not have an ESV. We're working on him. We're working on him. Maybe his mission trip to Africa coming back will, uh, will, will uh, you know, make him use the ESV. ESV. Um, and, and so what I love about my ESV Bible is, one, you've got all these different study notes. And one of them is... Uh, after Acts 9, where the Apostle Paul is commissioned, um, there is this just massive table of kind of plotting out his life of all he did and where he went. So you have the Apostle Paul, who was previously named Saul. You might be going, what, what, why, did Saul, why did Paul's name change from Saul to Paul? Read the book of Acts and see yourself. Um, in about A.D. 34 or 36, it's kind of argued between historians which it is, Paul has his dramatic conversion, and then for the next several years, the Apostle Paul um, really goes into seclusion. And if you read the book of Galatians, Paul refers to how he goes to the desert and, and really seems to study and receive revelation from God about the gospel. And, and then um, several years go by and he is commissioned to now join a guy by the name of Barnabas in a church called Antioch. And he really serves not as the pastor, but kind of as this um, assistant in training sort of pastor. And then, I believe it's Acts 13, um, Paul and, actually it's rather Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas is first, and then Paul in Acts 13. They are sent off on their first missionary journey, and somewhere along the way, it goes from Barnabas and Paul to rather Paul being the main guy, and then Barnabas. 
Um, this is all for free, you didn't need to know that, but I just thought that's kind of interesting. And you read it for yourself in the book of Acts. In fact, this week, read the book of Acts, or at least read Acts 9 all the way to the end, and you'll get a snapshot of everything that led up to what happened, what's going on in this letter in 1 Timothy. So Paul goes on his first missionary journey, he goes on a second missionary journey, and then he goes on a third missionary journey. Each missionary journey, Paul has two really main focuses in mind. The first is go to a really large city, preach the gospel, people get saved, and then his second kind of job role was to start a church in that city. Once he felt like his job was done, once he felt like the leadership could kind of take things from where he left it off, he would then leave that city and then go to another city, preach the gospel, people get saved, start a church, and then over and over and over and over again. At the end of his third missionary journey, Paul goes to a city called Ephesus, a massive city. By the way, we probably know more about Ephesus and what went on in the church in Ephesus than any other church in the New Testament, um, namely because um, the Apostle John was an elder in Ephesus. He writes three letters, and then you have Revelation chapter 2, and then, of course, you have 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus. So we know quite a bit. We know a lot of the problems that are going on. We know all the, the good things that are going on. And so Paul, end of his third missionary journey, um, latter half of um, the 50s in the A.D., he is in Ephesus, spends more time in Ephesus than any other city, plants the church there, um, ends up going to Jerusalem, gets thrown in prison, and pretty much is in prison for the next few years, is released. And then um, most likely went on a fourth missionary journey that we do not know much about and is not recorded in scripture, but is kind of more or less recorded by church fathers. And here's what happened. Paul, after he leaves Ephesus, as after his imprisonment, several years after he plants the church in Ephesus, um, problems start occurring in this church. And it seems as if Timothy is already there. And Paul tells Timothy, we're going to read it. Paul tells Timothy, hey, Timothy, I need you to stay there and work out some of the church leadership problems um, and the teaching that's going on. By the way, just notice um, it doesn't take long for the church in Ephesus to, to go off course. Like if you've ever been to a church and, and, and you soon realize, man, this church has got problems. Welcome to the New Testament, friend. Every church that Paul writes to, you know why he's writing to them? Because they're blowing it. They're messing up. So if you're ever at the mission, you're like, man, I see that there is a problem. Friend, there probably is. We are growing as a church, and I'm 29, so we, we, we are, we are growing, growing slowly but surely. Thank you for your grace. That's why we have amazing elders um, who help lead and guide this church to spiritual and gospel health. So that's what's going on. Paul is writing to Timothy really to help him pastor. And let's keep reading and we'll figure out really what the main point or main struggle is going on in the church of, church of Ephesus. Verse 3, as I urged you, this is Paul speaking, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths 
and endless genealogies, you can circle those last few lines there, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Verse 6, certain persons, speaking about the church in Ephesus, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So we get a a glimpse of the problems that's going on in the church in Ephesus. Again, we get glimpses. We get snapshots. We don't get a full, unpacked Um, Hey, point by point, these are all the things that were going on in Ephesus. We just kind of get this snapshot. Here's a snapshot that we see. There's certain people in the church in Ephesus. Some seem to be teachers and leaders. Others seem to be people who just want to be teachers and leaders. And Paul says, but but they're not. They're they're, they're kind of, they don't really know what they're talking about. And here's what these teachers and wannabe teachers and leaders and wannabe leaders were teaching and leading within the church in Ephesus. They were taking the Old Testament law and were beginning to, um, Paul says, make up myths based upon certain Old Testament passages. And he tells us which ones. The ones that are genealogies. So maybe you tried reading through the Bible in a year plan. How many of you ever tried that? Yeah? You're smiling because you got to the book of Numbers. And then, and, then, and then you read like four chapters straight. It's just name after name after name. It's a genealogy. It's just a family tree. So you just, you're reading this family tree and you're like, okay, it's time to skip ahead to the Gospels. And then you get to Matthew chapter 1. You know what Matthew chapter 1 is? It's a genealogy. And you're like, when does this end? Seriously. And so what was happening or what seems to be happening is that these teachers or wannabe teachers are taking these Old Testament passages, um, specifically genealogies, and teaching myths based upon them. In reality, what these people were doing is instead of focusing on the gospel message of what Christ has done for them, they are going back to certain Old Testament passages and focusing their attention and lifestyle based upon those. In in weeks ahead, we'll kind of give examples of this because if we're honest, sometimes we as, as, as Christians or as churches can sometimes make a similar mistake, probably not to the level that Ephesus made, but, but we can make this mistake where um, our Christianity has more to do with, I'm just going to be a really good parent rather than the gospel. And, and instead of these teachers and leaders teaching things that are all gospel-driven, gospel-focused. They're taking taking these obscure passages and teaching obscure things. And what was happening is the conduct of the people began to reflect it. So instead of living lives in light of the gospel, they're living lives in light of these um, mythical, obscure teachings based upon these obscure genealogy passages. And Paul says, "Um, Timothy, that needs to stop. That you need to pastor through that. And 
Paul continues, and he says this. And, and now it seems as if Paul is engaging these false teachers, and, and we'll point out why. Verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Here's the reason why it seems as if Paul is now engaging these false teachers is because these false teachers most likely were calling out Paul and saying, Paul doesn't care about the Old Testament. Paul's all about, you know, Jesus, and he does not care about this massive set of books before Jesus. And and the Apostle Paul's going, no, 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 the law is good. I ain't hating on the law. I'm not hating on the Old Testament. I'm not throwing it out. The law is good. But what's that next line? If one uses it lawfully. What does he mean here? Well, this word lawfully could probably better be translated if you use it rightly. Because that's what Paul means here. He's saying the law is good if you use it rightly. And and Paul gives us a little glimpse of what it means to use the law rightfully or what the use of the law truly is. Verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. What does Paul mean when he says the law is not for the is, is not for the just, but, but for the lawless. Here's what he's saying. Is that there are people who do not need the law to be restrained. And then there are some of us that we, we need the law to be restrained. So like, once I had kids, um, I don't need a, a sign that says 60 miles an hour to go 60. Alright? I'm just, I'm one of those parents now where I'm like, I'll get there when I get there. Gotta keep the baby safe. A few years before, the day before having my first child, I needed that sign, right? Right? And, and, and that's what he's saying. And, and, and in Romans, especially Romans 7, Paul gives us probably the clearest picture of all of the role of the law. What, what is the role of the law in the Old Testament? And Paul tells us, Paul really says there's, there's three major roles of the Old Testament law. The first one is that the law shows us what sin is. It shows us also that that we are sinners because you'll read the law and go, oh, that's sin. And then you'll keep reading and going, oh, I've done that. That means I'm a sinner. And then you'll also find that the third part of the law, the third point of the law is that it points to the fact that we need a savior. Here's maybe the best example I can give. Um, let, let's say that you're working in the yard, and unbeknownst to you, you get dirt all over, you know, just on your face. You're just working hard. You don't even know it. You go inside. You um, get in the bathroom, and you see in your reflection in the mirror, you got dirt on your face. What does that mirror do? That mirror tells you, hey, you got dirt on your face. Hey, you're dirty. But have you ever tried to use a mirror to clean the dirt off your face? Probably haven't. Because that's not what the mirror does. The mirror just points out the fact, hey, you're dirty. You need to be clean. I can't clean you. Go and figure that out yourself. That's what the law does. You read the Old Testament law, and Paul says it's really, really good because it points out this is what sin is. It's wrong to murder someone. It's wrong to disobey your parents. Can I get an amen, some parents in here? All right. Okay. You're with me. But the law will never, ever save you from your sin. That's what Paul is saying. The law is good. Can't throw it out. Because it shows us, 
Man, we're broken people. Man, that's sin. That's wrong. Here's what Paul now does, and it's going to engage us for the rest of this morning, is he starts pointing out who the law is for. Let's read. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Why is the law for those who strike? Why is the law for those people who strike their father and mother? So they know that's wrong. That's sin. Many of us probably don't need that. For murders. Why is the law for murders? So they know it's wrong to shoot somebody. For the sexually immoral. For men who practice homosexuality. For enslavers, for liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Are you tracking with what Paul's doing here? So the law is good. Here's why it's good. It helps us sinners to know that that's sin and that we shouldn't do it. And then he starts listing off these people. Hey, those people who beat their father and mother, the loss for them, so they know that's wrong. Those people who look at pornography, those people who have those sexually immoral thoughts in their mind that they entertain about a woman that is not their spouse, loss for them. Those, those people who lie, loss for them. That's what he's doing here. But we read something, and, and, and we're going to spend the rest of our time engaging in this, and I'm going to single out this one thing, because it is the one thing that is singled out in our culture, and frankly, I think a lot of people are wrestling with, how do we do this? What do we do with this line where Paul says, the law is for men who practice homosexuality? The language is very straightforward. It's two Greek words put into one, man in bed. And, and so I, I've heard people try and argue the, the language. Okay, but but that, it, it, the original language is Greek. Does it really say that? Yes, it really says that in Greek. But we have a problem. Or maybe some of us, we think we have a problem. Because Paul is obviously calling this sin. Right? We tracking? Can't, can't get around that. But yet, but yet, probably every month, you read a news article or read the news about another big church leader or another big denomination now is taking the position that, no, 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 the, the practice of same-sex relationships is, it's only sinful in certain contexts. But in contexts where it's committed or it's marital, that's not sin. And so, what do we do? What do we do when I bet you all here have a person in your life who is a believer and they would argue that Scripture says that it is not a sin for people to be in same-sex relationships that are mutual? So what do we do? Who's right? Who's wrong? And what I want us to do, and, and, and here's what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to take three of the main arguments that this camp, and when I, anytime I say this or they, I'm speaking about um, people who believe and take the stance that um, 
Biblically speaking, it's not a sin to practice same-sex relationships as long as it's in the context of a committed relationship. So, so um, what I want to do is I want to take the three main arguments that this camp has and engage with them from Scripture. And, and guys, uh, here, I, I just got to tell you, I'm going by this book. If you're here and you're like, I'm not sure if the Bible is completely authoritative, then, then I, can't, I, can't, I can't have a discussion with you because y- you're going to win. If this is out, okay, you, you, can, you can make it right. But, but I'm just, I'm engaging this and I'm going to be as true to this as possible. And I, one last thing I need to say. I cannot say it all, friends. So I left... Two resources at the bottom. One is a short article by Tim Keller um, that, that kind of unpacks further what I don't have time for. And then secondly, there's this great book that I read recently that, that kind of engages things that I can't. So that's just, I need to kind of put that forward. The second thing I need to say is, I meant for this sermon just to be for this Sunday, and it's not. We're going to continue it next Sunday, and here's what we're going to do next Sunday, is talk about how do we engage our culture with, with the biblical stance here. And I'll put it this way. Someone in our church, and they're here, so I'm sorry if I misquote you, um, we're at this men's night, and he said somewhere along the lines, this, this question, he said, Zach, I have a boss who... Um, practice is a practicing homosexual. What 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 do I do? How how do I engage in that relationship? And I think some of us we, we have that question. What, what does that look like? We're going to talk about that next week. So please come even though the Seahawks will be playing, God willing, at ten o five. So let's start here. And I'm already running out of time. Let's look through very quickly this list. For the ungodly, speaking about who the law is for, and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Okay, that's probably not you. Probably haven't struck your father and mother. If you have, let's let's talk after. Um, For murderers, I'm guessing not any of you. If you have, don't talk to me. Talk to the police. Uh, Verse 10, the sexually immoral. Ever looked at pornography before? Ever um, slept with someone outside of marriage, whether it's premarital sex or whether it's adultery? Ever been watching a show and, and, and the commercial comes on and, it's, and it's, it's that one? And you're like, I should, I should look away. I should turn. I'm obviously only speaking to guys right now. And, and, and you, just, you just keep watching and, and you let your mind entertain those thoughts. Um, you're on this list. Let's keep going. Men who practice homosexuality. Enslavers. Maybe that's not you. Probably not. Liars. You ever lied before? If, if you've lied before, you're a liar. Can't, can't say, oh, I'm not a liar. Well, have you lied before? Yeah, you're a liar. So right from the start and right from the get-go, we need to look at this text and say, you're on it too. I'm on it too. And one of the major problems in our Christian culture is that whether we do this on accident or whether we do this on purpose, we have singled out this sin of same-sex relationships. 
And that's wrong. And so let me just give you a very quick example, and, and I give it because I know that this will happen at some point in the mission church. My old church that I went to loved it, fantastic, played a major role in us starting here, planting us. Um, uh, a couple came in, um, two women came in to the church, started attending, and, and they began to hold hands during service. And, you know, this is, this is ten years ago, maybe not ten years ago, eight years ago. A lot has changed in eight years, friends. A lot has changed in eight years. Um, and, and so my pastor at the time was like, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to engage in this. And, and what began to happen is people in the church would begin to go to the pastor and say, hey, you need to knit that in the bud. I, I need stuff. That's the right phrase. Bud, not bud. Um, that, that needs to stop, Ken. You need to do something about it. If a couple comes in here, let's just, let's just go with the, the typical example. 21, 22-year-olds, they're, they're thinking about getting engaged, male and female, and they're walking in here, and they're holding hands, and, and it becomes very clear to you through, their, through your discussion with them that they're sleeping together, and they're not married. In fact, they begin to attend more and more, and it becomes even more... You're more convinced, okay, they're definitely sleeping with each other because he told them. So when that couple comes, do, do you shake their hand? Do you welcome them? Do you invite them to your community group? I beg of you, Mission Church, that you would. Our community groups should be, should be multiplying every single quarter because they're getting so large because you keep inviting people to them. But I think for most of us, and I, I, I'll be real, honestly, my, my, my first reaction, if I hadn't had time to think about this, if, if a, two guys or two gals came in holding hands, um, I, I, I think that wherever they'd sit, there'd be a, a bit of a circle around them with about six chairs in between. And, and would, you, would you, during the coffee chat time, go shake their hand? Would you lovingly welcome them, greet them? Would you invite them to your community group? Mission Church, I beg that you would. There is a difference between affirming and accepting. Jesus, over and over again, what did he do? He accepted, he accepted. But did he affirm he never affirmed certain sinful lifestyles. John 8 accepts the woman, but says, go now and leave your life of sin. Go now and leave your life of sin. And guys, here's my heartbeat, and this is not in the notes, and I'm going to make some last minute audibles here. Here's what God's putting on my heart as a pastor. And I don't know about you, but anytime like a new year comes around, I'm always thinking, what's next? What's next? And what's on my heart for the mission church is I am longing to see this place filled with people who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I'm just, I'm longing for that. A couple of years ago, Dan and I, we sat together and we said, 
let's just set some goals for the next five years of the Mission Church. So I spent some time praying about it, and I, and I just set these goals. And, and really, the goals were driven by what God was putting on my heart, and, and they were also driven by, by what seemed kind of impossible. Because I, I don't want us to be a church where we can gather around and go, okay, that happened because there was this great leadership. That, those elders are killing it. That's why it's going on. I want us to be a church where us elders are gathering together going, how do we keep up with what God's doing here? How in the world do we keep up with what God's doing here? And so we set these eight different benchmarks that we want to reach by 2018. Praise God, we've met, I think, four of them, three or four of them. One of them is, I just wrote, I want to see 500 salvations and 500 baptisms. Why 500? It was like the biggest number I could think of at the time. That, that, that's just, that's why. And I long for that, guys. And we need to understand that there are people in our lives, there are people that are walking through these doors that are so lost, and they're so sinful, and they're so broken, and we have the gospel that will save them. And what's ridiculous, at least to me it's ridiculous, is God says, and I want to use you to reach them. Do you you get that, guys? Do you get that God actually wants to reach you? God wants to use you to reach your friends and your family He wants to use you to reach the people on the list we just read. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, liars. You're called to reach them, guys. And just because we cannot affirm lifestyle or choices, we can exhaust ourselves through the power of the Holy Spirit to love on them And help them see how great and glorious Jesus is. And we got to ask ourselves, are we we doing that? Are we doing that? And and that's why Paul is writing Timothy. He's going, there's people in the church that are being taught the wrong things. It's not the gospel. They're not teaching the gospel. And we need, we need them to hear the gospel. And there's people outside the church that are coming in and they need to hear the gospel. And so instead of getting to what I wanted to get to, I want us to just, as the worship team comes up, I want us to just spend some time Thinking about the people in our life, would they say that you accept them, that you love on them? Would your coworkers, would your neighbors, would they say that you lovingly accept them? Because guys, that's, that's what we're, we're called to reach the lost. We, we must, we must. Are you guys with me? Am I just on a soapbox by myself? I just, I want us to wrestle with that tension. Are we walking in it? 
Are we, really, are we really making a difference in our community? Are we really making a difference of those people in our lives? Or are we just that Christian who's standing outside going, well, that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong, so I can't hang out with them, I can't be with them. And so let's, as the worship team, if you want to come up and... Um, let me just start by leading us in prayer. Father, this is by no means the direction I had in mind for this morning. And, and I, pray that, um, I pray that that's because you, God, you're trying to change this time to what you want it to be. Father, when we look at the New Testament, Paul writes to all of these different churches... Because there were problems in them. And every single time, the problem is that the people were no longer walking in the gospel, the message, the wonderful message of Jesus Christ dying on the cross to save us from our sins. And so Paul is writing to them, telling them that you have to walk in the gospel. And Father... I think about the mission church and asking myself the question, would the Apostle Paul write to any of us? Would he write to any of us that maybe we've been neglecting to live the gospel, to proclaim the gospel? Would Paul write to us? Would Paul write to the mission church Father, if these people are anything like me, they struggle and they wrestle with knowing that they need to be better at proclaiming the gospel to the lost people in their life. And yet, we don't do it like we should. And so, Father, in this time, as we just close in worship, as the band just plays musically, I pray that, that it wouldn't be guilt on our hearts that, oh, I'm a Christian. I, I should do better at loving my neighbor. I should do better at loving the lost people in my workplace. It wouldn't be guilt but God, right here, right now in this place, you would do something in our hearts where you allow us to taste and experience and know the gospel message to a depth that we've never, ever experienced before in our lives. And that you would sweep us so off of our feet of what the gospel has done in our life that, that we could not wait to tell people about Jesus. That every morning instead of praying, God, help me to share the gospel, that every morning we'd wake up going, God, I can't wait to share the gospel. 
Do that in us, Jesus. Do that in the mission church. Light our hearts on fire for you, Jesus. Allow our hearts to feel the crazy weight of the gospel. So I invite you now, whether it's singing along or whether it's bowing your head in prayer, just begging God to allow you to feel the weight of the gospel, meditating on what Jesus has done for you, wrestling with the question, God, am I, am I, am I living according to the gospel or am I living according to my own ways? We just use this time to re- reflect and meditate upon Jesus and what he's done and the great call we've been given to share that with the world.